digital space. Our Tribe podcast is perfect for the high-performing business-minded individuals who want to work with their biochemistry to achieve success and optimal health. It's Friday, which means it's time for friends sharing facts about health, business, and overall success. In today's episode, we talk to Professor Ed Cohen, author of On Learning to Heal, or What Does What Medicine Doesn't Know and founder of HealingCouncil.com, a therapeutic practice for people with chronic and acute illnesses. At 13, Ed Cohen was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, a chronic incurable condition that nearly killed him in his early 20s. At his diagnosis, his doctors told him that at the best he could hope he was pain and symptoms unmanageable, which never quite worked. Unfortunately, they never mentioned healing as a possibility. Cohen has a PhD in modern thought from Stanford and for the last three decades has been an award-winning professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Richards University. He demonstrates that although medicine can now offer many seemingly miraculous therapies, it is not and has never been the only way to enhance healing. Exploring his own path to healing, he argues that healing, that learning to heal requires us to desire and value healing as a vitality, vital possibility. Some things that Ed absolutely loves is gardening, biking, and dancing. Welcome to the Natural Health Podcast, Ed. No, oh, thank you so much for having me. You are most welcome. So gardening, are we gardening anything at the moment? What? Any winter vegetables? <laughs> uh, it's winter here in North America. So no, I have planted my bulbs for the spring and things are happening under the surface of the earth, but it's actually freezing here. So <laughs> yeah. Else. Everything has its own seasons, doesn't it? Exactly. Yes, but you're going into summer, so everything must be flowering down there. Yeah, we've got a garden, we've got a strawberries, tomatoes, peppers, you name it. Uh, it's looking beautiful. Awesome. <laughs> There's nothing more uh, enjoyable than watching things grow, I find. It is. It is too. It's the first time a few years ago that I ever planted a seed oh. and you watch it and you watch it grow and it was just amazing. And then you have this vegetable or fruit in your hand and you eat it. It's just, it's amazing how it happens. Oh, absolutely. No, they, I always think uh, from the very beginning of the season to the very end, like, because I'm at the end see, part of the season, when I have to clear the garden, the amount of biomass that has been produced, just the volume of material that you know has been synthesized basically from the carbon in the air and you know with some nutrients a little water and some vital intelligence it is really an amazing process yeah and and it's necessary to have the winter the summer the spring autumn all those seasons are necessary for us and we need to embrace them (laughs) (laughs) winter's hard (laughs) i love that so, Ed, I'm so excited to have you on the Natural Health Podcast here to share your story and a bit of um, the history that you're making. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself. I introduced you and I said that you do have, did have Crohn's disease and, um, you know, you looked into healing and so forth. But let's hear it from your own words. What has been uh, your healing journey and where you are today? Well, when I was 13, I got very, very sick on a cross-country trip with my family. Uh, and when we got back, I had lost so much weight and was so debilitated that when we stopped at my grandmother's house to drop my cousin off, my grandmother opened the door and started screaming. And that sort of was the beginning of the journey. After that, I started going to lots of doctors and then they didn't know what was going on uh so i ended up being hospitalized in those days in the us you could be hospitalized for testing and diagnosis uh and i was put uh i was in a very a university hospital in a very old 19th century building um and i was there for quite a long time and i was finally diagnosed with crohn's disease which uh at the time was not quite as well known as it is today. Uh, Crohn's disease is classified by most people who think about it, but not all, as an autoimmune illness. Um, And of course I was 13 and though I had a big vocabulary, I didn't know what autoimmunity meant. And so the first thing they said to me when I asked them what autoimmunity was, they said, well, it's like you're allergic to yourself. And well, that was not very helpful, so I, kind of asked again, well, what does that mean? And they said, it's like 
part of you is rejecting itself. And again, that was not super helpful. Um, and finally they said, well, it's like you're eating part of yourself alive. And I was like, oh, okay, I can get that. Turns out that's not a super helpful way to think about anything, uh, but especially when you're 13. Um, and the other part of it was then I was put on prednisone. Now today there are different kinds of medications for Crohn's and for many different kinds of autoimmune diseases that are known as biologics, which are basically uh, monoclonal antibodies. And they have fewer side effects than um, the drugs that I was put on. But I was put on high doses of prednisone, which is a cortisone steroid. And I was on that for 10 years. Um, so basically, when I talk about those years, I refer to it as my adolescence on steroids. Um, it's literally it's literally no absolutely <laughs> and i don't know if you've ever had the joy of taking prednisone but it's basically like having an induced uh, mental illness uh it has many many well-known side effects uh that you know today you can find out about just by googling but when i first was diagnosed there was no internet no googling no nothing and nobody mentioned the side effects so it was just the way things were um, and that was basically my life for the next 10 years. Um, you know, I was always incontinent. I was always, you know, rushing to the bathroom. I developed psychic abilities to discern where toilets were and any place that I was, you know, happened to be. Um, and, you know, I struggled to basically have a, a as normal a life as I could on these high doses of prednisone with an autoimmune disease that left me being incontinent as an adolescent. Um, then uh, there are many other kinds of symptoms of Crohn's disease, one of which is intestinal blockages. And I had one of those when I was 23 um, and it actually caused a small bowel perforation, uh, which went undetected at the time. And as a result, the contents of my gut leaked into my abdominal cavity and I got massive infections, including a giant abscess on a major blood vessel on the outside of my small intestine. And it ruptured, um, it ruptured several times before they figured out what it was. But the final rupture uh, was a bleed out or led to a bleed out where I almost died uh and i had a out of body near death kind of experience which in itself was kind of amazing uh and then but then i was you know rushed into emergency surgery and i did survive that and after that uh i began to heal um i mean as we all do that's the the basis of any kind of medical intervention like surgery or chemotherapy or radiation they can medicine can do all kinds of things that are quite assaultive to the organism and we depend on our capacity to recover from this um so but when i was in the hospital and i was on lots of antibiotics and lots of um lots of pain medication i started going into trances uh which i had no idea about um I come from a very devoutly atheistic family. My mother was a communist. My father was a physical chemist. And my family matter was all that mattered. And I didn't think of this as anything other than that. Basically, I could go into this kind of, I would listen to music and go into a kind of light-filled realm in which I could take the light and wrap it around the parts of my intestines and my viscera that they'd taken out parts of my liver. And I just I thought it was just pain management. Um, and, you know, at first, when the doctors or nurses would come into my room, they would be freaked out because they couldn't get me to come out of it. They could, you know, uh, but they realized if they turned off the music, I would come out of it. And then after that, we all just thought, OK, it's just, you know, listening to music. Uh, but then when I left the hospital a few months later, um, my surgeon in my exit interview said this thing to me that, you know, kind of seared itself into my brain because he said to me, you are the sickest person I've operated on in five years who's still alive. And I have no idea how you got better so quickly. 
And wow, yeah, that was really shocking for a number of reasons. One, it, it really sort of made me have to take stock of how sick I had been because I kind of was in denial about the whole thing. Even the, the out of body near death thing, I just, you know, couldn't really deal with. But then also the other side of it was that my doctor saying, I don't know how you got better, uh, was really quite, you know, earth shattering for me because I had been so dependent on doctors, to te- you know, in the way that they had been telling me what was happening to me, you know, the ways that they had been giving me frameworks for my own experience. And this was the first time a doctor said to me, I don't know, something happened. We know something happened, but I don't know how to describe it. Um, after that, then I had uh, a, a really serious withdrawal from prednisone. Prednisone is a very, very powerful drug. It basically overrides your adrenal glands, um, but it also interferes with tissue healing. So because I'd had massive surgery, they had to take me off of it very quickly. Um, and that's never a good idea, um, uh, especially if you were someone who had been as sick as me. Um, and so I basically went into a kind of drug withdrawal where I then, uh, I became dissociated. I became very, uh, just, I, I wasn't psychotic, but I was in some weird, you know, not present state of being that was clearly a problem. Uh, and I was trying to explain this to a friend of mine one night and she basically said, I can't deal with you, go to a therapist, which was very good advice. And uh, I ended up going to a therapist that was completely the wrong therapist for me, but also the absolutely most brilliant therapist. One of my roommates at the time was exploring her bisexuality and was interested in her relations with women. And she was seeing a therapist who at the time was famous as the lesbian sex therapist. Um, And during the short period of time that I was seeing her, she was on Oprah Winfrey. So one day my mother called me up and said, I saw you're a therapist on Oprah Winfrey talking about lesbian <laughs> bed death. I was like, oh, great, that's so great. Uh, but Joanne, Amazing. <laughs> like, the, the thing, Thanks, mom. <laughs> it was perfect. I mean, so Joanne was really not the person I, I didn't see her for very long. But the first time I saw her was amazing because I started telling her what was going on. And after like five or 10 minutes, she just held up her hand and said, stop. Said, you're having a drug withdrawal. Uh, This is what happens when you get taken off a prednisone. And my sister has Crohn's disease and she had a similar experience. And she went, she ended up seeing a doctor uh, who was at the time the head of pediatrics at Stanford Hospital, but who herself had Crohn's disease and who left uh, her practice, her traditional medical practice, and started a practice for people with chronic and life-threatening illnesses and for people like herself that she called recovering doctors. Um, And her name is Rachel Remen. She is an amazing healer. She has written two internationally best-selling books, Kitchen Table Wisdom and Blessings My Grandfather Gave Me. And basically she helped me change my life. I mean, she was the first person to really, the first doctor, because she's a doctor, to really affirm that healing is a reality, that medicine doesn't know how to, or medicine knows how to, but it doesn't, it's not that interested in uh, encouraging and supporting the healing process. It's very good for helping us when we're acutely ill, but it's not very good at helping us in restorative ways or for people with chronic and life-draining illnesses. So um, in my book on, on learning to heal or what, or what medicine doesn't know, I try to use my own uh, learning curve around healing to explain to people why it is that medicine no longer knows about healing in the ways that it might once have uh, tried to know, um, that it has become very invested in what is, I would call, bioreductionist science, 
um, as the basis of its practice, which is wonderful. Um, it knows many very important things, but not everything can necessarily be described in biochemical terms. Um, and so what I'm trying to do then, you know, and what I've been trying to do since my early 20s is to learn how to support and encourage my own process of healing. And then as I became better at doing that, to support and encourage the process of healing with others for others. Um, so, you know, that's a sort of long, short version of a very long story. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. I mean, going back to being 13, a 13 year old boy, uh, being told what you were told, uh, that's heartbreaking. That's, um, you know, looking forward to teenage years, adolescence, uh, when it's supposed to be all fun and games. Uh, whereas for you, it was, um, trying to figure out what is happening with your body. Uh, yeah, no, it was. And also at the same time I was being told that I was in the hospital uh where all these people around me were dying um the woman across the hall was an older woman with cancer and she was dying the only person around my age was in the room next to me and 16 year old girl who had leukemia and she died a few months after i got out of the hospital um so yeah it was very it it framed the experience of adolescence in um a not very positive way. Let me just put it in yeah. those terms. And being, and being exposed to the topic of death, not even the topic, but the realization of death at such a young age. Wow. Um, that is just gave me goosebumps everywhere. That's a big thing. And you've even mentioned you had the um, experience that you did have. Are we able to just touch upon that a little bit? Sure, of course. Uh, yeah. So, so tell us about it. Uh so as I was saying, um, I had a small bowel obstruction. It led to all of these complications. I had several episodes in which suddenly I just started bleeding through my anus, just massive gushing blood. Um, the first time was, you know, I was not in the hospital and my roommates, I was living, I was in graduate school. So my roommates found me lying on the floor in a pool of blood uh and you know called the ambulance and sent me to the hospital um and they still at that point couldn't really figure out what was going on they did every kind of test um because the abscess that was causing the problem was actually on the outside of the small intestine so it was very hard to visualize it um and then i was also uh turned out that i had uh, developed all these abscesses in my liver because the bacteria had started to grow in my liver. And so then I started spiking these incredibly high fevers. Um, so I was hospitalized and they continued doing tests, you know, on me. And it was, it was a interesting moment. This was in the summer of 1982. So it's been exactly 40 years. Um, and the summer of 1982 was also the time when AIDS was first, um, uh identified it wasn't called aids yet um, and i was a young gay man living in the san francisco bay area which was the epicenter of the aids epidemic and uh one day an infectious diseases team came into my room and they said to me they the cdc had just published their first uh article on what at the time was being called GRID, gay-related immunodeficiency. Uh, and they came into my room and they said, well, you know, the CDC is reporting that there are these illnesses among gay men and it seems like they're sexually transmitted and we don't know what's going on with you. And so we wonder, is it, do you think it's possible that you might have this? And I mean, I had basically been incontinent on high doses of prednisone and very sick for a very long time. So I had not been having sexual activity at all. And so I said to them, well, no, not unless you believe in immaculate infection. And then we all laughed and <laughs> moved on. But the irony is that it turned out that my greatest risk of being exposed to HIV was through all the blood transfusions I was receiving at the time, which were massive amounts of, massive amounts of blood. 
And one day, the abscess, one evening, the abscess on my intestine just completely burst. And I was just bleeding out, just gushing blood. And they were, had IV lines in every place that you could put them to put fluids and blood into me to try to stabilize me. And during that process, I was somewhere else. Uh, and I knew I was somewhere else because it was very peaceful and very calm. And I was not a peaceful or calm person. Nobody who's on prednisone is calm. It's not a thing. <laughs> uh, and so I was like, whoa, what is this place? What is this thing that's going on? And, uh, and I could see them working on me um, and eventually getting me stable enough that they could rush me down the hall. And basically, I experienced myself watching myself on this gurney going down the hall into the ER. Uh, and the next thing I knew, uh, I woke up in the ICU. Um, so it was a very uh, dramatic experience and yet at the same time not and i also knew i was it was clear in that moment that uh I, while i knew that something very dramatic was happening i also had a very strong feeling or like uh, i wasn't worried and i was pretty clear that i wasn't going to die that this was something you know something i was going through that so which turned out to be the case which i'm very glad about uh and uh but that really, like in that acute moment and in that experience, I think, you know, something, some part of me that I had no awareness of until that moment uh, really opened up, became available. Um, so I, I do think that subsequently when I was in the hospital recovering and going into trances, I think that there was a strong correlation between that, you know, very acute experience and then the more pacific experience of you know taking light and wrapping it around my intestines and um but all of that is was just a seed it was a very you know it was like a neon light saying oh look everything that you've thought about the world until now has been too limited something else is happening that you can't really comprehend in the terms that you have used to make sense of the world up until now um, in other words, it really just rocked my world for sure. Uh, so, and, you know, after that, as you know, I was really lucky because once, well, then I also had another kind of experience, which was then a few months later, I was by myself for the, really the first time after all of this experience, I had some time to reflect and I was walking in the woods one day and all of a sudden I felt something like I felt like from the ground, I felt the trees around me. And I got a really clear message that said, look, you could keep living in the way that you've been living and you will likely go through the experiences that you've gone through just now, or you can learn to live in another way. And I was like, yeah, I, I choose the latter. That's where I wanna go. And, and then suddenly, all of these amazing teachers started coming into my life. Like, so as I was explaining, you know, I went to this therapist who was the wrong therapist, but she was the person who knew the right person. And then I went to her and then she sent me to other people. And then I went to other people and, and, you know, and basically over the last 40 years, I've been led to study with like amazing, amazing teachers who have really um, given me resources, you know, both to, think about the world differently, but also to live differently and to support and encourage other people in living otherwise. I mean, one of the blessings of being a teacher is that I get to do that on a really regular basis. Um, and I think that, you know, once that healing experience has been seeded, you know, and if you tend it, like we were speaking about tending the garden earlier, if you tend it, the one of the possible fruits that comes to you know from those kinds of seeds is that you can share those fruits with others right and that they can yeah. share those seeds and that's really i feel like my um it's what i you know want to do it's why i wrote on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know uh precisely to try to share 
the things that I've been gifted by others through their processes. Um, and I think, you know, collectively at this moment in our world history, we need to heal, not just as individuals. I mean, I have a very dramatic personal story, but we really need a lot of collective healing right now. We need healing in our cultures, but we need healing on our planet. Um, and it's one of the amazing things about living systems is that all living systems have the capacity to heal. It's a tendency. It's one of the aspects that constitutes what we think of as life. Without the capacity to heal, there would be no life. Uh, you know, biologists, when they talk about what what makes a living system, living systems have to be contained. They have to have a membrane, but they have to be porous. They have to be able to let nutrients in and they have to be able to release toxins. They have to be able to reproduce themselves and they have to be able to repair themselves. They have to be able to heal. Healing is a natural tendency. doesn't mean if, you know, because it's a tendency, it doesn't mean it's an actuality because tendencies exist with countervailing tendencies. But what we, you know, if we realize that healing is an intrinsic tendency and we value that and we desire that, then we can develop ways to support that. Again, not just as individuals, you know, but as collectives in terms of the ways that our, our societies invest in you know, the basic uh, elements that keep people alive, food, housing, shelter, education, you know, all of those things are healing resources in different kinds of ways. Yeah, Ed, wow. Uh, there's so many questions I have, but um, I think the whole journey that you have been through uh, has been, uh, in a weird way, absolutely amazing because it's been literally a turning point because um, I do talk about turning points with people and your journey has literally been that turning point. Like you said, when you were in the woods, you had a choice which one you decided. And when you made that decision, all of these things fell into place on a plate for you. And it's like, here you go, Ed, you've chosen this, this part of the game. Now you've chosen this uh, scene and these are the people that are going to fall into your life. And this is where you're going to end up. Um, and now that you're sharing that with everyone else is, is just fabulous. Um, I love that. And you're so right in regards to healing. When we know that we ourselves are made to heal that in itself, the whole concept in itself is just mind blowing. Um, imagine going to a doctor and then telling you that you can heal. Like that in itself is just mind-blowing, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And unfortunately for doctors, I mean, it's not to blame doctors. That is how they are trained. I mean, there are... A hundred percent. That's the... I mean, and, you know, the irony of the way that, at least in what we call Western medicine or bio, biochemically, you know, the medicine that's based on biochemical reductionism as its, you know, intellectual framework... Uh, that the training actually is highly abusive <laughs> to the people who are undergoing the training. I mean, the ways that they are asked to not take care of themselves while they are taking care of others is a completely self-contradictory kind of structure. Uh, and the, as the, uh, the person that I mentioned before, Rachel Remen, who was one of my main teachers, has developed a course that's called The Healer's Art that's now taught in almost every medical school in America. And it's a short course for first-year medical students, basically to remind them it's okay that they got into this because they care about healing. And there's not much in their training that's going to support that, but you know that they can hold on to that because that is what is essential in what they do. And so it's not to blame doctors at all. And it's, and, it, you know, I mean, I would be dead without, you know, modern medical care. I mean, it's when you need it, go and get it uh, if it's available. But there are a lot of things that modern medicine isn't able to address. I mean, both in terms of, of physiological conditions, like, for example, like I have an autoimmune illness. There are now like 80 to 100 illnesses that are considered to be autoimmune. And for none of them are there cure what we would call a cure there in fact for none of them do they actually know what is going on uh, autoimmunity is mm. a, a paradoxical concept it it is one of the um, impasses in 
immunological theory that there are no uh, adequate explanations for. And more than that, there's no way that they can explain why they occur to the people in whom they occur, when they occur. It's like, well, why does someone, like a, a really good friend of mine was recently diagnosed with a very acute pulmonary uh, uh, dermomyositis, it's called a pulmonary uh, autoimmune illness. He's 60, he was diagnosed when he was 61. Like why at that point in his life did this suddenly happen? That's not something that medicine is interested in. I mean, my, yeah, medicine in general. I mean, particular doctors might be interested, but medicine per se is not much interested in that. I mean, they're interested in how we can suppress those symptoms and keep people alive, That which is, is great. I mean, it's awesome that we they if they have that capacity, but they don't always have that capacity. And for people who have chronic mm -hmm. illnesses, you know, that's one of the things that, at least in the U.S., you know, the COVID epidemic, you know, has oddly made more visible because of what's now being called long COVID, is the recognition that there are uh, there are illnesses that don't have succinct or predictable narrative frames, you know, that we can't say, oh, they will be over at this time. Many of us knew that for a very long time, but, you know, it's sort of been hiding in plain sight. Um, so I like that you said it's been hiding in plain sight a hundred percent because most diseases, illnesses uh, don't really have a start absolutely. and an end date. There's no such no, thing. Absolutely. Well, or even not only do they not have, a, a specific start and an end. I mean, the paradigm, that paradigm is predicated on uh, the model of infectious disease as it was understood in the late 19th century when the concept of germ theory was first introduced with the notion that there were microbial agents of pathogenesis. Uh, we subsequently have understood that that is a limited way of understanding the factors that are involved in something as, you know, I'm going to put it this way, basic as an infectious disease. Uh, because, you know, many people could be exposed to the same uh, microbial agent. And like COVID is a very good example. COVID is a great example, in fact, because you know, many people can be exposed to this viral particle. Uh, some people will be asymptomatic. Some people will not have any response at all. Some people will be asymptomatic. Some people will have like flu-like symptoms. You know, some people will get very seriously ill. Some people will have, you know, pulmonary uh, symptoms. Some people will have heart symptoms. Some people will have kidney symptoms. Some people have toe symptoms. Uh, some people will, you know, have uh, immune responses, uh, you know, the, these immunological cascades where the body, the organism's response to the presence of an infectious agent actually causes more debilitating kinds of phenomenon. And some people will die. Why, and on the one hand, you know, we can in terms of uh, epidemiology, we can statistically say, okay, you know, older people are more susceptible. Or we can say, oh, look, in the United States, I don't know what it was like in Australia, but, but in the United States, it was really clear that at least, especially in the initial stages, you know, that there were income disparities, racial disparities, uh, ethnic disparities, in, and actually gender disparities you know, in who was affected and, and in terms of severe uh, morbidity and mortality, um, although, you know, those things have, have changed somewhat. Um, but, you know, what that, you know, makes it clear is it's like the virus is not the cause. Like we, you know, we really want to, you know, people really wanted to focus on the idea that SARS-CoV-2 is the cause of COVID. No, Anything that happens is always a multifactorial uh, phenomenon. It's like, it's something, and this is like the difference between an idea of disease and an illness. A disease is a, what medicine defines as being a pathology. It's the way that medicine classifies and characterizes certain phenomenon that it 
can understand in terms of its particular knowledge base. Illness is the way that we experience what it is that medicine has defined as being pathological. And those experiences are particular to every person, you know, and that how, how, why they occur to the people that they occurred, when they occur is it's not, uh, um, it's not a monocausal system. It's a very complicated system. And, you know, basically medicine, like all scientific precepts, you know, wants things to be cut and dry. I mean, want things to be cut and dry, but the, the problem with wanting things to be cut and dry is only dead things are cut and dried, right? Living systems, if you cut and dry them, (laughs) you kill them, right? That's like the, yeah. So, you know, you can learn a lot in medicine and medicine learns a lot, you know, from autopsies from dead bodies. That's where medicine learns a lot, but it can't learn anything about healing from a corpse. Corpses no longer have the capacity to heal. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the, the notions of causality, there's no beginnings or endings. There's, and there's no singularity of causes. It's, you know, uh, illnesses arise in the course of our lives. We are living beings. We are events. We happen in time. And, you know, as one of the things like in relationship to the, the illness that I have, I, I like to say shit happens. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> literally. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I mean, that was before my, so I, I, my book was originally called shit happens. And then the publisher was not keen on it. So now it's called on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know, which is, is more true to, what the book is about but i love the title shit happens i mean as someone too who I love it. a lot of shit happens uh yeah i, I, I really you know, want to like put that out there I, I i love the whole concept that you've just explored and brought up for people to um wonder about or think about because we all have these beliefs but what you just did right there is question the belief of illness and disease uh you've questioned people's minds and thought okay when did my whatever illness they may have when did it start or when is it going to end or is it a journey is there a stop and start does it go and wonder like the waves like the water you know is it fluid um it's it's a great concept and i love it um and sometimes we can define when the symptoms started of this illness or this disease but like you said that may not be the start of the illness or the disease in itself and it's also a multi 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 um concept uh, there's so many things to take in consideration with anything that happens to us absolutely with everything that you've gone through what would you would you be able to define what optimal health may mean to you uh does that even exist to you um well so uh so f- before i i respond to that i just wanted to comment on, on what you were just saying so the way that i look at things i would i'm one of those like i was one of those super annoying children uh who always was like asking why 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 you know and basically i've grown up into like one of those super annoying adults who goes why why but fortunately for me there it doesn't no, change does it it's always no, the same question why, why? just our age changes <laughs> well, and the thing is like, but as a result there's actually a profession that i can be in where i got paid to ask that question so you know i'm lucky in that regard um you know, so, you know, what I always, you know, what basically what my work as an academic is, is to try to understand uh, things that we take for granted, that we think of as being self-evident and try to understand, well, how did they come to seem self-evident to us? You know, and what happens if we begin to think about when they first emerged, why they were construed in the ways that they did, uh, and what are other possibilities. So the two uh, concepts that you just put forward, health and optimal, are both concepts that I like to trouble. I think both of them 
are uh, a little bit too restrictive to apply to living organisms. I mean, health is a static concept. That's why I prefer healing. Healing is a gerund, it's a noun of process. It reminds us that as living beings, we are not things, we are events. Like what I try to tell my students all the time, you know, it's like in our culture, you know, we have this peculiar way of thinking about what it means to be a, a living being, where we say to be a person means to have a body. And I'm always struck by that because I think, well, who is the person that has the body? Like where, how is that, you know, where is that possessor that is not part of the possession? That doesn't really, I don't know. Again, I'm like, why, why? And uh, so, you know, one of the ways I try to reframe that is by saying, it seems to me empirically speaking, that it's more accurate to understand ourselves as events. And that, you know, really, if you want to be very biochemically reductionist about it, we are transformations of matter and energy localized in time and space. We are ongoing processes um, and we're never static. We're always, we're, we, if we're not transforming, we're dead. So health to me is a slightly problematic concept because it tries to fix that process and say that there is a state. State by definition means static. It means fixed. It means stopped, right? Whereas healing is a process. It's a tendency. It's, it's never complete. It's always ongoing. And as I like to say to people, I mean, and dying for some people is healing. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I helped my father to die. Wow, that's a, that's a huge concept right there. What you just said. Yeah, no, but and I and again, I I know. If, I mean, I I don't know from personal experience in the sense of I haven't died, but but I've been with people dying. <laughs> yet we all haven't died <laughs> yet. yet. <laughs> soon to come, soon to come for all of us. <laughs> but, no, I mean both. You know, yeah, it, it it can be a process of letting go of things that are completely unnecessary, that people have lived with their entire lives. And in, you know, a friend of mine before she passed in, she was a, a real, a wonderful person, wonderful, great, but really committed caretaker. She was always taking care of everyone around her, her family, her children, her husband, her work, everything. And she was able to let that go in the last, weeks of her life and it she was like blissful it was like amazing to you know be able to you know to to be a witness to that i mean that's sort of so anyway but that's a, a a side point so health to me is a kind of limiting concept that's why i like healing and again optimal is another uh category so optimal i mean i'm sorry to be so pedantic but uh but this is you know my job uh, so optimization is actually a, a concept that comes from mathematics. It comes from calculus and, uh, and optimization refers to the way in which a curve functions in a particular, uh, um, what would, a, what do you call it? A, um, a dimensional space. Uh, so, you know, so. I'm not sure that optimization is something that you know, living organisms really uh, are capable of. But what I like to say, and that's why I like to talk about healing again as a process, is my definition of healing is as living organisms, we have the capacity to enhance our, our vitality, you know, uh, in the way that we live, in the context in which we live, right? So to me enhancing our healing capacity is a, a more productive way of thinking about what it means to be living than than a more static concept like op optimal health optimal health to me uh really is like put, trying to put yourself in a box right um yeah 
I knew I knew talking to you at today you're definitely going to question some beliefs and some things in my head that I had and just, I just knew it I just knew it it's, it's an occupational hazard what can I say No but I absolutely love it because like you said I love the whole concept of that we are an event um that uh it's a process there's no end to healing um there's no end to it at all and it happens at any given time when we decide for it to happen um yeah i love it i i yeah i knew you were going to definitely blow my mind today i knew it 100% i'm going i'm going to myself have to listen to this podcast again and just go mm yes mm <laughs> and then i'll call you and be like can we just talk Absolutely. about this <laughs> you have my email Amazing. look at my you know my website healingcouncil.com it you know it gives some of the background of this material yeah i'm happy to talk to people 100%. about it 100% i mean as i say you know i feel really blessed to have had teachers who helped me along the way and I'm trying to do that for others. Um that's you know why I wrote my book on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know and that's why I have my practice healingcouncil.com. Anybody is welcome to get in touch with me. Um I you know I'm happy to talk to people. Uh you know I do a brief session with people for 15 minutes or so just to see if it's something they're interested in. Um so absolutely if, you know if other people want to have their Amazing. Alone, bring it on. That's what I say. <laughs> they already have. They already have. <laughs> um, so the whole concept about illness and healing, right? What can illness essentially relieve? Like, what can it show us? Uh, if someone falls, the illness has the disease, falls sick. Uh, what can it show us, and what can it mean for people? Um, Ed. Well, we have to understand that uh, we're, we always live in context, right? There, there's no we're, no, we're not separated from the world at all. We, I mean, and again, that's one of the things that, that COVID reminds us of. I mean, the word contagion literally etym- etymologically means together touching. We are always touching each other. Um, and, you know, people's specific circumstances are very, very different. Some people have a lot of resources and some people have no resources. So it's not possible to say generically, like what illness as an experience will can mean to everyone. I mean, if you have very limited resources and you don't have, you don't have time, you know, you don't have supportive conditions, you know, that that is going to shape what your experience of illness is very profoundly. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, I, I'm very lucky. I'm very privileged. I have always had very good health insurance. You know, I'm a professional. I, I mean, that, that's part of the way that I've, mo- you know, lit, modulated my life. I, I have a kind of job where I can, you know, work at my own pace, do things, you know, in my own way. I don't have to be, you know, somewhere nine to five. I'm not at the beck and call of other people. So, uh, so it's, it's really impossible to say, and, and I really, not only is it impossible to say, but I really don't want to say that illness could be this or that. Um, but in the best of circumstances where, uh, in relationship to whatever shit is happening to you, whether that is something that's physiological or something, a challenge that's happening to you psychologically or economically, or, you know, uh, you know, however the challenge presents itself to you, uh, if your orientation towards that is not that this is an affliction, this is an assault, why is this, happening to me, you know, I just want to get back to the way things were before, how do I get over this, you know, which are all kind of scripted responses, when our lives are disrupted by many kinds of of factors, including diseases, um, that but if we can approach it from the perspective of, hmm, well, something's happening here. 
is there something that I can learn from this? Is there some way that I can grow from this? Is there some way that I can be more of who I am in the process of experiencing this? And and the anecdote that I'll, I use to explain this to people has nothing to do with health or illness, but has to do with politics. Uh, so I was teaching uh, uh, undergraduate seminar on the night that Donald Trump was elected in the United States. And I was teaching from 6 to 9 p.m. And the election returns were coming in. And, you know, the students were on their phones and they were getting clearly disturbed by what was happening. And so at a certain point, I could no longer go on with the class. And I had to have, you know, so I said, okay, let's just go around and say, what do we think is happening? Not what do we think will happen, but what do we think is happening right now? And everybody went around and the very last person to speak was a wonderful young lesbian, Filipino lesbian, who grew up in an evangelical Christian family who were incredibly supportive of her, She's like an amazing human being. And her response was just so moving. She said, I don't know what's happening right now, but what I know is that I am going to continue to try to be the best version of myself that I can possibly be so that whatever happens, I can respond to it in the best way that I possibly can. And I just thought, girlfriend, you are so right on. And that is- <laughs> That is brilliant. Yeah, I mean, you know, that is, and that's true for all of this, you know, for anything that it's like in this moment, how can I be the best version of myself so that I can respond to what is presenting itself to me in this moment, in the most graceful way, in the most vital way, you know, in the most intelligent way. Um, so I'm almost trying to be the best version of yourself, no matter of the external consequences or anything external that may happen. It's how we react to things and how we deal with things, no matter what is happening outside. And this goes directly in line with if someone is sitting at the doctor's office and they do get diagnosed with Crohn's, they do get diagnosed with cancer, they do get diagnosed with whatever disease um, they want to name it. It's about exactly what you just said, what that girl said. It's about us and being the best version of ourselves. Absolutely. I mean, that, you know, and also, you know, not to, and it's not about denying our fear. It's not about, you know, denying our anxiety. I mean, those are all aspects of who we are as well. They're, and they're not, you know, they are to be uh, valued. That, that's information that we're getting about how we are in the world at that particular moment. Uh, but if we can approach these occasions as challenges that are precisely those that present us with the possibility of becoming more than we have been up until now, rather than things that diminish us. Because too often, and this is unfortunately, you know, what medicine uh inclines us to do because you know when we go to the doctor we approach a doctor as someone who is supposed to know we desire that other person to tell us what is happening to us and tell us what to do well okay they have a lot of resources and they do can identify certain kinds of phenomenon and they can you know if we're lucky because not for but for certain they can prescribe certain things that you know modulate you know but but we we are the ones who are living our own lives. You know, we are the ones we need to take back that power that we give to medicine. Not which is not to say medicine isn't powerful. Medicine is very powerful. But but if we heal, we always we do the healing. Medicine and this is what medicine thought it was ever since medicine was first invented uh you know in the 5th century BCE medicine always thought that its job was to support and encourage the natural power of healing and unfortunately when medicine took on the notion that it should be a science rather than an art it bracketed that traditional self-understanding and got into business and of course 
medicine's a business, right? And it's and its trademark, its selling point is that it sells us cures. It sells us treatments. And but things that are not saleable, things that are not quantifiable, uh, are things that remain and it's uninteresting to it. It's not that medicine doesn't know they exist. It does. It, it, doctors are presented with phenomena like my, like my my surgeon said to me, "You're the sickest person I have operated on in five years. He's still alive, and I don't know how you got better so quickly." I mean. Doctors know that this happens. Doctors know that there are spontaneous recoveries from cancers. Doctors know, you know, I mean, these are, but they're considered anecdotal, right? Because we can't quantify them. We can't, we can't put them in an algorithm. We can't, they're, they're not predictable. And, you know, fair enough. That's not their business, you know, but it could be their business to at least acknowledge the importance of those potentialities, even if they aren't the ones that they themselves can invest in. Um, mm. So essentially the missing link for healing, it's something that can't be patented and can't be solved, no, which is within us all. No, absolutely. Exactly. That is absolutely mind blowing. Um, tell us a little bit about your clinical practice and a little bit about your philosophy before we close off uh, the interview, because you've just gave us so much to think about. My mind is still probably in the first 10 minutes that you spoke and I was trying to process all of that. Um, but <laughs> tell us about your clinical practice. So how would someone go, what, what would they experience? Or do you have any examples of people that you can provide us with clearly not mentioning names? Uh, yeah, tell us. Sure. Um, so my practice, I call it healing counsel. Uh, obviously the healing part. Counsel is an interesting word. Uh, it means, etymologically means to jump together. Um, uh, so, you know, it's like, what I try to emphasize to people is in our uh, in our time together that I it's, I'm not in the engagement in order to heal you. I am in a conversation with you in which together we are exploring the possibilities of healing for for all of us. Um, uh, healing counsel is an eclectic practice. It draws on some elements of therapy, some elements of pedagogy. It's actually a practice that I call, well, it's not just, I mean, it's a practice of, of what's called psychagogy that nobody really knows what that is anymore. But psychagogy is pedagogy's twin. Uh, it's existed for millennia. Uh, Socrates was a psychagogue. The difference between pedagogy and psychagogy is the, the pedagogy, peda is like child, right? So pedagogy is the conduct of children, whereas psychagogy is the conduct of minds or souls. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's the level at which healing uh, can be best, or one of the ways in which healing can be supported and encouraged is by helping us to understand that if we desire and value healing as a possibility in our lives, that it becomes more likely to manifest in, uh, in more concrete ways. So we work together, I use guided imagery, I use meditation, I use different kinds of movement practices. It's depending on, on who the person is, you know, uh, that's interested in healing, but, but basically what I try to do is create a context in which together we value healing. That, because in general, our culture doesn't do that. But if we create a value context in which healing is something that we're interested in, right, that, that we're trying to call forth, then it can manifest in many different kinds of ways. It can manifest physiologically or not. It does not, you know, uh, it doesn't mean your symptoms will go away. It doesn't mean that you'll be pain-free. It doesn't mean, obviously, that you're not gonna die because guess what, we all are. Uh, <laughs> but, but what it is trying to suggest is that at every moment, it is possible for us to enhance the quality of our lives in the context in which we live them. 
and we all live in context in which there are certain kinds of limitations. But that doesn't mean that we have to be defined by those limitations. That mm, you know, mm. one of the chapters of my book, is, the second chapter of my book is called "We Are We Are More Intelligent Than We Know." Uh, you know, so so healing counsel is about helping us to access that intelligence that we don't yet know about ourselves. That is absolutely brilliant. And the thing that you said at the start of the podcast, which I loved, is is that if we are in the process of healing ourselves, we're not only healing ourselves, we're healing the collective. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a major point because it's not just about us. It's about everyone around us because we're all connected. No, absolutely. And that's why I, I like you know this, the anecdote about my student because, you know, she was 20 and she already understood that. You know, that that's, that is a basic precept of being a living being. How, how we live affects all other beings, those that we are directly mm. in contact with. But as we know, through, you know, issues about global, you know, warming and environmental change, I mean, literally how we live our lives, how we drive our cars, how we affects the biosphere. I mean, it affects the entire context of life on our planet. Yeah, a hundred percent. So Ed, everyone listening to this podcast is like, wow, this is absolutely amazing. Uh, to kind of close it off, are you able to give us or the audience, give them maybe a few practical tips um, about healing um, for their journey of healing? If they could do something today or one thing they can think about, what would that be that will lead them closer to healing? Well, I mean, uh, number one, uh, would precisely be to to desire healing, to begin to try to move towards it. I mean, as you know, I was saying in my own story before, it's like until I knew it was a possibility and until I made a decision that that was a direction that I wanted to move in, all of the resources that might be able to support me in that process were invisible to me. So, so partly it's at the level of your desire, your intention to desire to heal, which is different than to, to desire to be cured, to desire to get back to normal. It's the desire to learn, to live and grow, uh, and learn or to learn to live and grow in more expansive and life enhancing ways. Um, so, you know, to, you know, as a, a kind of framing uh, precept, I would say, you know, understanding that healing always entails learning. And so to be open, to be open to learning from what your experience is, I think that's, you know, that will orient us towards healing in general. Uh, in concrete uh, ways, as I say, everybody is different. Uh, it's hard to give like a precept, but you know, I mean, you ask like, uh, you know, what's your life hack uh, in terms of, you know, like your own healing experience? Sleep. Sleep is number one. Sleep, rest. Sleep, rest. Uh, sleep is, is so important. I mean, for me, for living with Crohn's, I mean, honestly, if I'm, if I'm too tired, if I'm not, if I don't get enough sleep, I mean, I, that's, that's the way that I've turned around, you know, in part, uh, my relationship to Crohn's, I now think of it as sort of a barometer. Like if I'm suddenly, if I'm having symptoms, it means that there's some way that I am, I'm not, you know, I've extended myself too much or I'm not taking care of myself. And probably it means I'm not getting enough sleep. So, um, so. And all of us humans do sleep. So that's not something, I mean, I don't know of an individual nor, uh, that I know of that hasn't slept in their lifetime and is still alive. No, you so, can't. No, no, you uh, have to, no, no, you, you must, we, we must, I mean, and it's again, like to go back to what medicine does, you know, I mean, honestly, medicine doesn't know what sleeping does. Like, we, I mean, they don't know in evolutionary terms, like why we sleep in the ways that we sleep. Other species sleep. Some birds sleep half their brain. You know, I mean, but but 
we know it's restorative, you know, but why, how, that's still in the big zone of unknown and don't even get me into dreaming. I mean, like that's a whole other. <laughs> that's a whole nother few hours of talking. I love dreaming and I love sleep. Love so we'll too. definitely have stuff to talk about. <laughs> No, I absolutely love it, Ed. Uh, your time today is highly, highly appreciated. Oh, your knowledge so is, much. your knowledge is out of this world. Absolutely love it. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, I'm going to put in the show notes. But did you want to say where they can contact you? Yeah, it's healingcouncil.com, and there's a contact page. Just fill out the form if you're interested, and I will get back to you. Amazing. Thank you so much, oh, Ed, pleasure. for your time today. Is there anything else you want to share with the audience or you've, you're I, quite happy with what you've I shared? I did a lot here, yeah. Amazing. A hundred percent. Thank you. Thank you so much. much Thank you for joining us at the Natural Podcast. And remember, the missing link between failure and success is your health. is opinion of Mahalo Goose and is for patient purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. It is not intended to provide medical advice or take the place of medical advice or any current treatment you're undertaking. Consult your own medical professionals for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the Natural Health Podcast. It is advised that you consult your doctor or healthcare professional in relation to any health concerns you may be having. Mahalo Goose does not take responsibility for any health consequences which occur from a person listening, viewing, or reading this content. And in the circumstances shall the Natural Health Podcast Mahela Raguz, any guests or contributors to the Natural Podcast, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of Mahela Raguz be responsible for damages arising from the information provided on the Natural Podcast. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical conditions in either yourself or others. Please note if you're taking prescription, do not stop your medication or start a new protocol, including but not limited to supplements diet lifestyle changes without consulting a doctor or healthcare professional. If you or any person has a medical concern, you should consult with your healthcare provider or seek other professional medical advice. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something that you have read or heard on the natural podcast or in any linked materials. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or emergency services immediately. Neither Mahela Raguz nor the publisher of this contact takes responsibility for the possible health consequences of any person or persons reading or listening or following the information in educational content.